Please pronounce your name correctly for me. Okay. So my name is Petra Vargova. And you're from? I'm from the Czech Republic, from Prague. Now, you were born and raised in Prague? I was born and raised in Prague, You're yes. one of the few. There are not a lot of you all still around. That's right. Yeah. yeah. Okay. And your studies have taken you around the world. You have not always stayed in the Czech Absolutely. Republic. Absolutely. Yeah. I studied uh, at the Fine Academy in Prague, and then I actually went uh, to Norway. And from Norway, I moved to Sweden, and I studied in Sweden, in Yetapuri at Schalmers uh, University. And you would define yourself con- currently as a conceptual artist, yes, no? I think so. Conceptual artist uh, using new media. Okay, new media artist? Yeah, something in between conceptual artist and new media artist. Let's say new media is my tool and the thinking is conceptual. It's tough. I mean, the, the art market just wants to pigeonhole us into something. Right. right. They want to yeah. be able to say, yeah. you're a painter, you're a sculptor, you're Absolutely. a whatever. So like trying to find the right word is always very difficult. One question I always ask everybody is, is basically, how did you get to being an artist? Like, so family, do you have a family lineage of arts and creativity? Were your parents creative? Was it a teacher? Like, Actually, what got nothing, you there? none of those. I was uh, raised uh, to be a professional athlete. My mom was a professional athlete. She was playing volleyball. She was on a national team and and she was actually very, very good until she got pregnant and, and she couldn't be at the same level you anymore. You ruined her career for right. her. Right. So she had my sister and then seven years later she had me. So she kind of projected her, you know, unfinished career uh, into me and my sister and uh, my sister was very tall so she played volleyball but wasn't that talented as my mom and uh, as you can see i'm not tall and uh, i did not like uh, i did not like uh, group activities ever so i did diving and uh, when i was uh, about 10 and 12 uh, i was at the practice and i made a big mistake and i fell on the board it hit me in my neck and I had to recover for a couple of months. And by the time I started uh, reading different things, and when I came back to diving practice, I couldn't do it anymore because I was scared. And I was really scared. So I kept trying. And then instead of diving, I started uh, to swim. So I, I swam, but I didn't like it very much. And uh, I actually started turning into arts and philosophy and literature more and more and more. And that's how I basically got into making art. I, I was into theory in the first place very much. I was reading a lot. And then I guess by reading, I started getting my own ideas and, and trying them out. And, and I ended up actually practicing art instead of uh, thinking about the theory of art. And so this is, how old were you when this was all going on? It started about when I was 12 and it got more progress when I was 14, 15 and 16. It, it really changed because I changed the school. You know, we go to higher grade of school in the Czech Republic when we are 14 and 15. So I met different kind of people and, and that was actually the beginning. 
And so now, so let's jump forward a little bit. So now you are a PhD student? Right. And, stu- and what's the PhD based in? The PhD is uh, based in art education. And uh, it's actually something that I have been wondering about for a long time. And the topic is uh, how do we get prepared during our our education in school for perceiving or liking or even being interested in art if I mean contemporary art when I say art uh, I mostly mean contemporary art if the teachers besides teaching us how to draw and how to paint if they actually bring some piece of contemporary art taking kids or young students to the gallery showing them work talking about their own works because very often the teachers are artists themselves so if they talk about their own work so that's my that's my research and uh, do you want to know how i got into this idea of the research i kind of do because i'm a professor Mm -hmm. it's my background and I'm very disillusioned with the academic structure right, right. now. I, I feel like there's this huge shift in academia towards students being happy, whether re- re- instead of students being educated or encouraged or whatever. Of course, I'm up at the university level, not like at the younger younger kids. But yeah, I'd love to know a little bit more about the, the how you got into the idea because the idea is a valid idea i mean there are entire programs like in the united states of the stem program which is all about how to get people interested in the arts so when i started exhibiting i i finished as new media artist right that that's how i graduated so i always used lots of technical equipment in the gallery but i was hiding it it wasn't like exposed and it wasn't that you would come to the gallery and and you would get to play with the computer and there there we have it there's art it was always somewhere in the background uh but lots of times i had interactive pieces and every time i had an interactive piece the gallery had to shut it down like three days later and I had to come and repair everything. And and, uh, I was, first I was very upset, then I was very sad and then I was angry and I, I was thinking to myself, well, something's wrong because it worked when I tried, it worked when my friends tried, my family, but when I just uh, uh, put it out there and the random people come, it always gets broken kids so what, kids what's, broke it. what's wrong with it and then when i exhibited the same work in sweden it never happened i was like maybe something wrong with with my country <laughs> we just don't know how to behave we just and that was like uh, late 90s and beginning of the new century okay so wait you, so you're saying you were exhibiting these things in the czech republic in czech republic and, and they were getting broken yeah and they would get broken and it didn't matter if it was a private gallery or gallery that was run by the state oh yeah my, my parents beat into me not literally yeah. my parents never beat me but like they um, you know continually repeat on me like that there is etiquette that should be taken whenever you're in a museum or any sort of esteemed place like you know you basically don't touch it right <laughs> just period unless you're into actively told you are allowed to touch it so first i was observing you know people when i was traveling 
instead of going into the gallery and just look at the work, what I usually do, I was also looking at the people, at the visitors, how they behaved. And then I went and uh, looked at the visitors over here, how they behaved. It was different. It was like really, really different. It took me many years to turn this kind of interest into a PhD research topic. But for many years I, I've been observing and then when I started in Sweden and I I lived there, I actually visited a couple of schools and I could see how they educate children, how they teach art, how the the art education looks like. They have like a much there. greater appreciation and it's understanding and, and integrated sensibility. Absolutely. Of it. And it's more complex. They produce art or they do assignments, but they also go out. They they visit, they bring artists into the class. They talk to them. What age group are you talking about? I'm talking about kids between 12 and 16. Oh, teenagers. That okay. was, yeah, teenagers. That was my opportunity to see. I don't know about younger children or older, older youngsters, uh, but that's what and I've seen about five classes, not not very many. And it was in the big cities. It was in Stockholm, Norway, and and uh, Gothenburg. So you know, it could be slightly different where they don't have this access to art road. But yeah, it, I, I was I was very surprised, and I thought to myself, wow, I I would love to have that kind of teacher when I was in school. You know, drawing, painting. It was always the same when when I used to go to school and it wasn't good. <laughs> the arts has always been underfunded and underappreciated generally in American mm. uh, school system. So I, I'm always trying to hear of new adventurous ideas of how we can revamp all of this because I don't know, like I can't put my finger on other than underfunding and underappreciating like yeah. what, what's going wrong so like it's very difficult to try and figure out how to fix it. So, right. You know, I think some of the best ways is to literally go to the countries and locations where people seem to be doing it right and use them as examples and try and you know, extrapolate that out from how what did they do and how could we do something like that wherever we are. But it doesn't happen. People don't do it. Yeah, people don't do it, I noticed. All right, so these days you are... A PhD student, correct. You're an exhibiting artist, correct. What other side hustles do you have to do to make a living? Actually, I also translate from English. <laughs> it's good. It's good money here. Yeah, it's nice money, and uh, I also occasionally teach. Mostly yeah. at the department where I do my PhD, they pay me separately for this. Mm -hmm. So. Put it all together and and you get a decent salary if you are married or have a partner who also works. <laughs> so right. you, you yeah. put it together and and there you go. You and can. So are you married? Do you have children? Anything? Yeah, like Yeah, I'm married. I, I have a daughter. You have a daughter. Yeah. I, I'm about you know sometime in the next couple of years I'm planning on having a child. I'm married and I'm. You know, I'm scared in my own way of like, how will that affect my career and mm. all these kinds of things? And I've had these kinds of conversations. Like, so the, my question would be sort of like, did having a child affect, and even just being married, sort of affect your career in any way, positive or negative? I think it did a lot, actually. And uh, my current marriage is my second marriage. Okay. 
And the first time I was married to an American, that's how I happened to live in the United States. We met in Sweden, actually, when we started together. Uh, the program I attended was uh, bringing together programmers and artists or technical people with technical background and right, people and with artistic minds. background. Yeah. yeah. So my husband, Joshua, he was a programmer and uh, we actually worked together on, on a couple of uh, projects and that's how we got together and uh, we ended up getting married in San Francisco and we had a daughter and he just couldn't he just couldn't cope with it because uh, my cultural background and his cultural background did not fit about uh, about uh, bringing up a child so he basically expected that i was gonna start working six months after delivery but i expected to, to be on a maternity leave for three years that's uh, right which this is something that you know we should explain to the listeners right in america america is generally sort of a often believe that women if they're working women that they go back to work pretty quickly whereas in the czech republic there is a, a federal opportunity I shouldn't say it's a mandate but opportunity that women can take up to three years off for Actually, maternity four is four it four years, now yeah okay but but it, it's an opportunity. They they don't have to take the full three years. They can choose to do it as one year, but or, or all the way up to the full three years, and, and that's a cultural thing here. My wife and I have had this conversation a lot. Um, so, yeah, it's an interesting difference. Right, and you get paid. I mean, it's a it's a little money comparing to your salary, but you still get paid. You get social benefits, and you get health care for both you and your child, which is very important. And uh, so. Our daughter was born here, but my husband didn't like it here. He had a language problem. He couldn't find a job that he would like. He he got a good job, but he didn't like the job. He, he worked in a bank and he didn't like it. He wanted to work uh, for a startup or for a company that would work with artistic projects, which here, I don't know about now, but back then... Uh, we are talking about uh, nine, ten years ago. It was completely impossible unless you were a volunteer. So we moved back to the United States and uh, we moved to New York, which uh, very fast I found out that New York is not a good place for living with a small child. It takes a certain kind of person, even without a child, just to live in New York. Exactly. I mean, had been to the United States before, but I, I, I had been to California where actually Joshua comes from and I had no idea how different California is from oh yeah from actually dramatically different New York or even the both coasts. Oh are California is just different from everywhere different. and New York is different from everywhere. I mean you chose the the two most sort of most different places ever in the United States. Yeah, so we actually, in the end, we settled down in uh, Brooklyn, which I actually found out to be a very, very nice place. And uh, I really liked it there. And we lived in uh, Cabell Hill for three years. And uh, we are... But what's going on with your art practice in here? Anything? Nothing? So I actually... This is interesting. When my daughter was born, I didn't feel the need to produce art. So I stopped working. I still had ideas. So I started this little 
little notebook where I used to write down all my projects that came into my mind and kept them for later, but I wasn't producing anything. And I still was getting offers for shows and stuff like that. But a lot of the offers I just turned down because I wasn't here and I was still doing installations where I had to come set up everything. And then when I came back, I, I had to take it down because that wasn't very expensive equipment. So I just decided to take a break and uh, I didn't feel like I was missing anything because I was my... I was 37 when my daughter was born, so I, I've had a long career before that, and I was resting. It was actually very, very nice. Yeah, sometimes we need some time away to have perspective, to look down new avenues and stuff, and so now you've returned to making art. Right. Did, did that gap in your CV, did that affect you in any way when you returned to producing art? And, and exhibiting and what and selling whatever else you did to like did anybody say like well what have you been doing for the past x amount of years how long did you take off i think i took off for about uh, four, years. four years and uh, it did affect me a lot in both negative and and positive ways so first i did not have work to exhibit because everybody wanted contemporary work right like recent stuff yeah, one year old, old two stuff. years old yeah. and i kept showing them my old work and everybody would say yeah we know that work it's very good but what have you been doing i said well i i've been on a maternity leave and said well go to your studio make something and and give me a call so that's how i actually got a studio in queens and and i started working and the positive part of it, when I started working again, I I suddenly discovered that I didn't have the need to produce those complex computer-based installations. It's just, it went away by itself. I, I didn't have to do anything. So my work changed a lot and I liked it. I. I didn't suffer. I didn't. I didn't spend time, you know, to like, oh, what's happening? I I don't want to do this. I actually liked it. That's great. I mean, I'm wondering about this because actually I've had conversations with some other people on the podcast about you know gap years because uh, like for all practical purposes, I kind of had a gap time because I went to the Middle East and I worked right. figuratively and I couldn't really exhibit while I was there. So I kind of have this gap of about six years in my CV where it's definitely not as productive or at least not as exhibition rate i was super productive i made mm. a ton of work but i couldn't exhibit it right so it's interesting this little gap year kind of thing how it uh, happens in different people's lives for different reasons i actually think people look at you differently when you are a woman because they understand yeah you took your time at least over here and i was mostly exhibiting in scandinavia and, and czech republic so you know both cultures or communities are are kind of very understanding about about women taking care of children so i didn't feel any pressure most of people asked because they were wondering so what what have you done in those years and i told them i was just uh, you know writing down the ideas and going back to them and it was fine and so now do you have a gallery representing you i don't and i never actually had i had connection to a couple of galleries and I sold a couple of pieces. But over here, 
I never sold as much art as in the United States where I actually did not really exhibit. But my CV from Europe helped me to sell a lot of work just out of my studio. People would come there and it was either private collectors or people who would just like it or people who had a gallery and, and wanted to work. So that was a big surprise to me. It's a little bit of a surprise to me too, actually. But I mean, and this is something that I'm finding the more I'm talking to people mm -hmm. in Europe, because for me, like this is kind of a idiot, a American idiot traveling abroad kind of an idea with this podcast. Like I, I was raised in America. I have American core philosophies and this kind of stuff. And I'm now in Europe and I feel like I'm, I've got it all backwards. But if I feel like European art is generally based on concept and gravitas the meaning and all this and basically like they're, they're driving their idea forward and they don't they don't seem to have an interest in selling like it's just it's just I not agree even something that. it's not it's not important to them yeah you know when i told my parents i will be an artist and i'll go to school that will educate me in art the first question was so how are you gonna make your living and my parents had the same question in America. I mean, that every parent has that question right? for their child that says, I'm going to be an artist. Yeah. It never occurred to me that I would actually make a living by selling art. And when it happened a couple of times, I was very surprised. I was like, wow. So because, you know, you, you do installation art and no one's going to put it into their living room, right? You, you, you understand that. No, so I was only selling to museums and... I was actually even selling uh, video work, which I was surprised by because, you know, everybody can steal a video. I was about to say, I'm a little surprised you can why sell you, video work. Why would you pay for video? Uh, but I actually made this uh, video where I'm inside a video game fighting characters. It was this video game, Dead or Alive 2. And... Uh, it got purchased by the company who actually created the game. Right. And I don't know who is that, if it's Sony or, or yeah, I, I don't know, some, some Japanese company who, who, makes, uh, who makes these uh, video games. And uh, they paid me a lot of money. Well, and that lends to the, the big sort of underlying question of this whole thing. You're a conceptual artist, and, you know, that's the easiest way to explain you. You do installation stuff. How do you support making more art so from my understanding it seems like a lot of it here in europe is grants right and that's basically what i used to do a lot i cannot do it right now because they don't afford grants to students of any level so for four years i had to stop but not really because you can get funding from your university besides your uh, your phd I don't know if you call it a stipend or fellowship or whatever. Uh, we get paid as they PhD both, students. Yeah, yeah. Uh, you can get uh, funding from your university. So I I would be applying for for grants within the university. Great. Okay, I'm a huge idiot on the whole issue of like I came from America. My our background is basically you produce a piece of art, you put it on the wall, you sell it, you take that money from that sale, you make right. more art. Yes. Like this. So that's the, the capitalistic sort of cycle of yes. how you make more art. Here in Europe, it's very much the opposite. It's basically, 
you write a proposal, you get a grant, you produce a thing, you have an exhibition, the exhibition goes well, that then elevates your status and another curator or another location or gallery sees you and then you get another opportunity exactly. and then so on and so on. But the the hardest one that the, the the linchpin that I have not figured out the trick to, which is what I'm trying to do here in this right. podcast, how do you write good artist statements or or grand proposals? Wow, I actually learned that in the United States. Really? Yes, I did. Um, I got this fellowship for Color Art Institute uh, in 2008. And I spent there about three months. And besides uh, making art, I applied with a project. Besides making art, they offered these classes for artists, how to write your artist statement. Cal Arts is a great how school. To, I'm a huge fan. How to apply for a grant. So I attended those classes and uh, it really changed the way I write all the things now. and like 90% works because it's pitched. It's very, it's not complex. It's simple, but complex that everyone can understand. And I think that's, that's can, the can way. Can you give me a couple little tips that you sort of take into heart that like when you sit down to write a, an artist statement or a proposal that you keep in your back of your mind, that the like, I've got to be sure to you know, you have to really understand who this is for, right? If it's for somebody who sits in the office at the Cultural Institute, and it, it, it's not really an art historian, theoretician, a curator, or an artist, him or herself, you, you, wanna, you want him or her to understand what's on the piece of paper, and then it, it's worth to be produced. So you are writing for this kind of person. But if you're writing for a grant uh, that that's actually awarded uh, by an art foundation where they have people who are into art. Right, okay, so what, I'm, think what I'm thinking you're expressing is the idea of like, let's say a, a governmental grant, which exactly. would be like the office work yes, or that's the reading office work. versus like a, a private foundation yes. or something like this where, where they actually have a, a really great robust jury of people who right. are, are practitioners yeah. and theorists. Yeah. And they understand the trends and everything. So, so, then, ba so basically, if you're writing to other creative people, you can use all your big, eloquent art words. Exactly. But if you're writing to a like a government or something like this, where an office worker is going to read it, you kind of right. got to dumb it down a little bit. Right? Yeah. <laughs> I know it sounds bad, but, I mean, but yeah, that's just the truth. That's it. That's yeah. it. I mean, you, you can't use like, you know, oh, this is a Bachmalian, blah, 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 you know, Kant philosophy and all this when you're, you're putting exactly. this to a federal employee, yeah. they're not going to understand it. So you, you kind of have to know your market and know your target reader uh, for, the, for the grants. And then another source of funding is uh, when the gallery has some funding for you to produce the work and, that and then is show it there. fascinating to me i have never heard of this before i got to the european union um the the idea that a gallery has received funding for their program but they don't already have an artist 
for the program. So then they're, yes. they're basically sitting there with money going, hmm, who should we invite to make work? Let's invite this artist. And then you put a proposal right. in and they give you a budget and whatever, and you work within their budget. Like, that's ridiculous to me. I've never heard of such a thing. <laughs> yeah, I love it, but it. I love it too. It's really great. But it's ridiculous. I mean, well, but so who gets those funds? So like, are we talking, so there, it's not private galleries. They wouldn't have those. It could be a private gallery, but they need to be nonprofit, not a commercial one. Okay, I'm so confused with words like private, not pr nonprofit mm. versus. So let's say you you have a nonprofit uh, organization who runs a gallery. Okay, but wait, let's change that because here in Europe it's NGO, not nonprofit. Nonprofit is an American word. Yeah. So <laughs> that's how I NGO know here, yeah. which is non governmental organization. Correct. NGO. So NGO, but okay, so but then there there. Are, I'm trying to think like I know some what I would call for-profit galleries that get grants. They sometimes do, but not for commercial activities. And it, it uh, means okay. the activity yeah, yeah. will not bring them money. I get it. Okay, that is a big so difference. So they have to declare and right, then, right. you know, when everything's done and finished, they have to submit some papers to actually prove that that wasn't a commercial event or and they oh, I understand that because like money. I know that the Czech Republic right now has a fund that they give to galleries to go to art fairs yes. yeah and they will fund the basically the exhibition of a, a, right. a, a Czech artist at an international art fair but not funding it for the ability to sell it so that's that difference right. okay I got it that and makes sense I think they actually want to get you know Czech art in into the art world yeah, but that little delineation between like sales versus mm. non-sales, that makes a huge difference. Yes, that's like, right. Last night I was sitting around for hours trying to write a grant for Scandinavia, as a matter of fact, for mm. the Nordic region. And um, it's so difficult, like having to get down to the little obsessive little words and words that I don't understand because, you know, I'm I'm not from around here and right. they use vocabulary and terminology it's a special language. That's it right. It really is. <laughs> and I, I and, and, but everybody has different special languages. Like I'm looking at right now mm. at three different grants. There's one in the Nordic region. There's one called Visegrad uh, Foundation or Visegrad Fund, yeah. and then the U.S. embassies also allow. And in each of them, even though they're all granting things, they all use different vocabulary because, like, one is literally a government organization. One's a private, right. and then yeah. one's a private government mixture. And so. Even if you learn what you think is the vocabulary for the, this, every single organization uses slightly different vocabulary to describe the same thing. It's very frustrating. Maybe it's frustrating to you because you're a native speaker. <laughs> Maybe. You know, it yeah. could be because. I'm very semantic about yeah. things like pedantic even to yeah. the point of like like I obsess over single words. And like when I see a word that I don't understand, I'm like, what do they mean by this? I don't get it. Mm -hmm. Did yeah, they yeah, mean yeah, this absolutely. or that? Like, I, okay, maybe it's all on me. Maybe it's my fault. I actually have experienced when I lived in Sweden, I, I understood uh, different English words in, uh, in different meaning than Swedish people did. And then we had a misunderstanding until we said, all right, so I'm actually meaning this by saying this. 
and I was surprised and then I kind of changed the way I was speaking English into more Scandinavian way of using the language and it worked. It was better. Okay. That's good. So I need to get out of my own head basically when I'm writing a grant. Stop being stop writing it as myself and and write it more from from their perspective basically i think that's the point yeah that's the key okay yeah because like i'm looking at their their grants like mobility the word mobility mobility. it's a big buzzword right now it seems to be everywhere when i think of mobility i think of a very particular thing i think of moving Mm-hmm. Right. So like I was looking at a grant recently that had the word mobility. It was the title of the grant. So it's a mobility grant. The mobility grant would only pay for somebody to travel within the country. Right. It will not tr- allow for somebody to travel from that country to another country. And it will not pay for somebody from another country to travel into that country. But if you want to travel within the country, it will pay for that. Now, that's not mobility to me. That that's just that's nationalism is what that, that's, that's just saying like hey we're good with you being anywhere in our country but we don't care if you go out of the country and we don't care if you come into the country that's not mobility as a matter of fact to me that's the opposite of mobility it's stability right yeah I mean that's that, that's like saying hey we're good we'll, we'll be insular Let, let's stay just within ourselves we don't care about anybody else <laughs> Like that's the opposite to me. Yeah. I mean, it, am I wrong on that? Like, so this no, is the I, like- I think you're right. It reminds me. I used to get these mobility grants in Sweden when I lived there within Scandinavia, but you couldn't go to Iceland and and fiery. You couldn't even islands. go to Iceland. Yeah, but that's still Scandinavia. If, if you travel Denmark, Norway, Sweden, and Finland, I don't remember if they they counted Estonia. You could uh, you could apply and and you could go, but you couldn't go overseas. It's fascinating to me. Like, and again, it's just like those little words, yeah. like mobility. It's a word that like when I read it, I read it as a very particular way. But when they wrote it, they meant it in a very different way. That's right. When you're applying for a grant, there's oftentimes a, like a little email or a person you can contact and ask questions. I'm always afraid to email them because I'm like, if I cause problems or if I ask the wrong question or if I ask something whatever what you know just make some stupid error in my email that's gonna fuck me up and I'm not gonna be able to get the the grant because of my communication so like I'm always scared to actually ask these questions of these people because I'm afraid that it's going to be detrimental to my achieving the grant have do you ever like have you ever written emails to these hello helper people I sometimes do first things First thing, uh, they know a lot about it, but they don't actually judge the the final thing, right? And they turned out to be extremely helpful. I I haven't had a single experience where they would turn me down or or tell me, "Listen, your question's really stupid. We we like wh- why don't you why don't you just look at our website and it's all there." And mostly when I lived in Sweden, I used to do this. Over here, I kind of know know the situation and and I know my way around. This is a small country and I grew up here. But in Scandinavia, I I think I I did it all the time and it worked pretty well. Okay, so people should not be, and well, people listening and myself, we should not be afraid to ask questions of these contact people. Absolutely. No matter how stupid they are. I have a lot of experience with the Swedish uh, Institute. They have a lot of grants for all kinds of art, not just uh, not just visual art, but 
literature, theater, and and everything. And uh, they are extremely nice. They really are. That's how I actually could study in Sweden because I got uh, big funding from them, actually a salary for for the time of my studies, and it was fantastic. They are really good. Wow, that is that does sound fantastic. Yeah. I have a huge interest in residencies, and you have done some. I have. Please tell me countless stories, like share stories. Like, a, I'm interested in like how do you choose a residency to even apply for? Because quite honestly, I feel like there are a large amount of time and investment and energy even in writing the application. So like, you really have to choose which ones you want to apply for. Right. Right. Intelligently. So. When I finished school, I was eager to go for residencies because I really wanted to see what was going on around in the art world besides our country. When, when, now, when are we talking about? What years? So I was done with school at 2002. Okay. And I started my yeah, I think first... we're about the same age. Yeah. I'm 40, uh, yeah, 46. I'm 46. I'm 46 as well. So that, that's it. Uh, so I finished my my studies at 2002, and I started uh, doing residencies when I was a student because that was part of the program you you had to go, and I think that's how I actually started my interest in Scandinavia because I wanted to go to London. I really wanted to go to London. I spoke English, and uh, I thought London was the best. I would want to go to the United States, but there was no opportunity for the United States. So I chose London and I didn't get selected. And they said, well, you know, instead you'll go to Stockholm. And I was like, "Mm, okay, I'll go. And it was in February and uh, it was really dark there when I came. But then I went to school there, Royal College of Fine Arts. And I was amazed. I couldn't believe how the school looked, where it was located across the street or at the same island of Moderna Muset with like all the artists I wanted to see and uh, what they had in the new media studio. They had a roche set with an assistant and another technical assistant. And uh, every artist or every student that they had a private studio or a shared studio and the school was extremely rich and uh, had fantastic professors and fantastic visiting professors and i didn't want to go back to prague ever 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 Uh, but of course i went and uh, i finished my studies and then immediately i was looking for another opportunity to go somewhere else and that's practically how i got to residency first in norway where i spent uh, just two weeks it was a short residency but very nice in uh, oslo and i to be honest don't remember what was the name of the organization i think it was the state organization I'm like, sure we can look it up yeah, on your yeah, CV. Yeah, like Nor- Nor- Norway Council for the Arts or something like that. And afterwards, uh, I actually decided to apply for another study program uh, in Gothenburg, Sweden. Because when I was at that residency in Oslo, I met some people who studied there. 
and uh, I recognized that something like that I would actually could use for my artistic practice what they what they taught there so I applied there and I did another master's another two years of real university studies wait a minute hold on you went to this was in Norway this was in Norway and I applied for Gothenburg Sweden Okay, and you're applying for Sweden. So you went and got another master's in Sweden. In Sweden, at okay. Chalmers University. What language did that? Achieve? That was English. So you, the school was in English? The program was in English. The, the program, school okay. is in Swedish, but that this particular program was in English, yeah. Okay, I'm just fascinated that there are these even English programs available throughout the world. And it was free for everyone, for even people who did not come from Sweden. And I just needed to get money for my living in Sweden. So I applied to Which Swedish Institute. Which is not institute. cheap. It's, it's, it's pretty not, expensive It's there. very expensive. Not as expensive as Norway, but it's still very expensive for, for Czech people. Sure. Yeah. I If I didn't get the stipend, I wouldn't be able to go. Like, I had no savings. I I had no way to make money in Sweden because I wasn't allowed to work there when I studied. And my parents couldn't support me there. So I, I, I wouldn't have gone there but it went out it went out well and and I went and while I was there I applied for another stipend to, or stipend residency to go back to Royal College so I wanted to stay more in Sweden because I really liked it and you know if you stay somewhere for some amount of time you start building your connection you find your way around you learn the language and all of a sudden the life gets easier you have friends and uh, so i applied for this residency at the royal college of arts which was called a project program and you would apply with the, an art project and if they liked it uh, you could actually attend the school same way the students did and work there using their facilities having little stipend to produce your your work and uh, it was fantastic so i i got selected and i went there and i spent there another year again i'm really fascinated with the application process on these things like so what what were you applying for how did you write these things to achieve these i mean were they highly competitive? You know, were, were there like a thousand people and they only I chose two? they are very like... competitive. And uh, basically every studio, I don't know if uh, what's the system in the United States, but the art schools here, they have a sculpture studio, new media studio, painting studio, conceptual art studio, video art studio. So you apply within a particular studio and then the professor or whoever leads the particular studio picks what he or she likes and uh, I think it was easier for me because they remembered me when I was there right so so really this is coming down to the same thing that I keep hearing through everybody's uh, podcast is basically connections and relationships yes I mean so actually okay which then begs the question because somebody brought this up once which is if you blindly apply for, uh, let's say, a residency in this case, so if you blindly, so you don't know anybody there, you don't know anybody there, you don't know anybody who's participated before, you have a, a less of a chance and you, you have substantially more of a chance if you know somebody, just even casually, if somebody just recognizes your name or if you've had an exhibition that they've seen or anything like this, like if somebody at that 
granting place, that residency place, just is aware of you, you have a better chance of receiving it. That's correct. It's such it's a, it's such a closed loop though. Mm, so like, how is. do you get into that closed loop? Very easy answer. You get into this loop if you enter an educational institution in that country. I'm 46. I'm not going to be entering an educational right. institution at this point in my career. Absolutely. I, mean, I could go as a visiting artist it. or a visiting teacher, I guess, but that'd be about the only way I could do that. So I mean, yes. But you you only know about sort of that Scandinavian region, but it's it's that interest of like how do we? It's not like break the cycle, but like how do you, how does an outsider get into that cycle? You know, like the one thing that I keep hearing, like I even see this online, a lot of people keep talking about, it, is like we all know that residencies lead to more residencies, lead to more yes. residencies, but how do, it's getting that first residency that is the most mm -hmm. difficult thing. My same answer. I, I got my first residency when I was a student at Fine Art Academy and I went to Royal College of Art in Stockholm. Right. And then when I applied there again, they've remembered me and they said, yeah, we, we want her back. So yeah, it's the close circle we are talking about here. And uh, I have no idea how to penetrate it if you are a real outsider, like if you are really from very far away, well, and you that's don't what know I'm thinking. anybody. Like, because I'm thinking, let's say an artist anywhere in America who wants to come to a residency in Europe somewhere, like that's going to be hard. They're, it is hard. If they haven't exhibited in that area or done any other sort of thing in that exactly. area and, and have some, because yeah. having those relationships and those personal connections is the absolute most important thing. I mean, Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. Without fail. It's it's the most important thing. When I think about it, I really have no recommendations how to do this. Just to build some connections and very, very slowly towards something. Okay. So your experiences in residencies, have you been doing like group residencies where you like you'll go and there's like a dozen people and you all work in the studios near each other and you eat dinner together or are these more individual residencies mostly the more individual residencies i actually never ran into this kind of group residency so i know they exist but I actually never, never yeah, ran well, into you, this. You don't apply for them. Yeah, you you don't. <laughs> I don't. But so, how do you choose a residency when you say, oh, "I want to apply for a residency"? Are you like because I always am interested? Is like, what's the right way to do it? Like you say, you have a good percentage of of success. So it's like, is the right way start with a location that you really want to mm -hmm. be in a location, or is it start? Or is it better to look for certain crit other criteria, or you know, what's the thing, the the first thing you look for? So I personally look for a location because I go to residency to somehow influence my work. If I don't want to get influenced, I, I'm happy to sit back home because I, I don't like to travel that much lately. So I actually haven't been anywhere for a couple of years since I came back from the United States uh, in 2015. So I look for the place. That's the most important part for me. And of course, I look at the institution. Is it a decent institution? Where will I stay? How does it look, right? I mean, I, I don't want to live in a tent uh, if it's not 
during summer and and that's the point unless right? that's the thing yeah, unless that's the point right so i think the place is the most important now, are all of yours fully funded the ones you've done uh yes yeah because they seem like these rare unicorns kind of like yeah. these fully funded ones they're less and less of them it feels like We'll sort of start to wrap it up. My last two questions oftentimes end up being the longest discussions I have. So have you listened to the podcast before? The whole podcast? Uh, you mean any podcast? Mine. Your, this one. No, no, no. Okay, I that's fine. No problem. I don't take offense. It's okay. I have two questions I generally ask. So the first question is basically uh, advice. So some, something that you learned or something you know now that you wish you knew 15, 20 years ago. Wow. That's hard. I think all comes with experience, right? I actually, I wish I've known how everything's connected because many times when I was very progressive in the beginning of my career, I wasn't that nice to people. Like it's I really good. wasn't. I, I have, I did the same thing in early in my career, or maybe even still, I don't know that I was overly arrogant. Yeah. And it get back to you, and uh, it get back to you when you don't expect it. And it happened to me a couple of times in the past, and I I really regret it because it wasn't necessary. I you know I I, I did it to to myself, and then it uh, it turned around and and came back. So yeah, there's a difference between like self confidence and arrogance. Absolutely, yeah, and. Everybody should remember that. Yeah. I mean, the I, I was always taught as a young artist, basically, your reputation is everything. Like, literally, your entire career will be based on your reputation. And what people don't understand is that reputation is not always the quality of your work, but it's Absolutely. the reputation of you as a person. Yes. It, it's Are you yes. a trustworthy person? Are you a reliable person? Are you a pleasure to work with? Like, curators and galleries and institutions, they're not going to want you around if you're a pain in the ass. Like, exactly. So like you have to be, it's not like you have to be happy go lucky and like the, you know, the sunshine and rainbows all day, but you have to be enjoyable to work with people. If people yes. don't enjoy working with you, they're not going to want you around. That's right. I think this is the most important part when you are actually starting to remember that you should be nice to people, that you might be the most talented artist in the past 50 years but if you're terrible it's not gonna take a long time and you won't be exhibiting because no one cares no one wants you that's good i like it all right my last question that i ask everybody which is it's a questionable question so all right for the podcast um so the idea of the podcast is that i'm trying to learn how the contemporary art visual art world works yes okay since this is a nebulous thing basically i'm just putting this this audio recording out into the world and i don't know nobody would know if i learned and i wouldn't know if they learned i created a quantifiable outcome okay so my idea is this is that i desire to put a piece of my existing artwork so not a new project so yes. like an existing piece i have and have it on exhibition in the museum of modern art in new york city yes and i will do whatever people tell me so whatever you're about to tell me mm -hmm. i will do it 
and I will keep people involved in the progress of my ability to achieve that through the podcast. All right. So the idea is what's something I could or should do? You know, so the idea is basically advice to other practicing mm -hmm. artists that, that you believe is the right thing to put us on the path to getting to, I chose the Museum of Modern Art. It could be any major institution, right. you know, Tate Modern, whatever other right. one you want to do. So I just chose Museum of Modern Art. What would be your recommendation? So I basically have two recommendations because I, it's one thing that I'm thinking that could work and one thing that I learned in the United States how to get there faster. And uh, I will not do anything illegal. No, no, no. Okay. This is this is completely legal and uh, I I have to say in the beginning that this is the strategy that I was told about in 2008 and uh, I wouldn't was never passionate to try out because very soon afterwards I had a child and uh, I took a break in my career. So I was getting ready to try, but I never tried. So maybe it doesn't work this way anymore. But when I was taking classes about uh, how to write an artist statement, how to write a grant application and how to actually promote yourself and meet the right people in the United States, because I was a complete outsider. Uh, this one lady was uh, teaching a special class and uh, she was showing us that all the major institutions, art institutions in the United States, including MoMA and the, I don't know, uh, what, what else, Whitney Museum of, of Art, uh, you know, the, the biggest stars you can imagine, they all have on their website a link where you can submit your work directly to the museum and propose an exhibition. And she's known people who've done that and it worked and people have had a show in Whitney Museum or took part in Whitney Biennial. You know how famous this Biennial is, yeah. right? People would kill to get there. And through this kind of secret you know secret thing uh, they would apply their email would get to the curator and they would start a conversation they would ha have a studio visit and from there everything started so when I lived in the United States I was gonna do this but when I went back to my artistic practice, my life in the United States got cut off. I had to return here. I didn't have enough money to stay living there. Uh, just to explaining why I never tried out. I'm, I'm promoting something that I never tried out. So. Oh, I love this. I, I had, I didn't, I've never heard this before. Yeah. So as I said, it's something I learned back in 2008 and I, I can't say it still works, but back then... I wonder if they've closed I, that back door. <laughs> like they're like, yeah, this is too many emails, we're I out. actually like, uh, had a database of, of these little links. I don't have them anymore because I, I've lost my computer. Uh, but you should be able to... Back up your data. <laughs> to Always. find out if you, if you go to the websites of museums you like or admire or you want to cooperate with. You can always uh, find a way in. Uh, another, another way which I learned in the United States is if you don't find this kind of open 
unlimited open call she called it unlimited open call like not time limited just like you think your work is interested and interesting and you you've been working in as an artist for a couple of years let us know about yourself uh you can look, look up the particular curator who works in your area let's say you are a painter or a sculptor you just find that person and you send a personal email maybe show them some some work uh, just sending photographs or if you work in that area if you have a studio in new york you can try that i've heard that in new york this is the most common way to approaching curators so sometimes they just don't don't get back to you but many often they they do so that's another way and the way it works for us Czech artists is that we just get recommended like local curator knows your work she or he travels meets a curator in London United States and they kind of exchange artists and that's an interesting thing that like okay um going back through my I guess my own issues of of maybe I don't know who taught me this or who expressed this to me, but I was always under the impression that curators were this, these people in ivory towers in museums that like are unapproachable, that, that don't want to hear from artists kind of thing. And, and here in Europe, I'm hearing it's almost the exact opposite. I mean, it, it feels like the curators, if they're not working for a major institution. So we're talking independent yes. curators, they are boots on the ground. They want to meet everybody. Yes. They always are like almost always, if they have even an inkling of interest in your work, they are happy to come do a studio visit just to see what the possibilities or the potential are like that. Those curators are that connective tissue that really sort of binds all of your relationships throughout That's the art absolutely world. Absolutely correct. They even go to school like, when we had those final exhibitions and that was twice a year in in after the first semester was over and then the final semester was over we had a we had an exhibition what we had, had done that year and uh, that's how how i got uh, my first group exhibition uh, I just showed my work in, in school, in, in our studio. We just clean up the studio. We set it up. And afterwards, I got a telephone call and, and I got exhibited uh, at the Prague Biennial of Young Artists uh, at the Prague City Gallery, which is, uh, you, you know that, right? That's a, that's a big gallery. And I still have connection to curators there. And that happened in 1996. So a long time ago. It's, but it's absolutely fascinating to me, this whole other world of things that basically like when I was being taught to how to be an artist, like either they didn't know, my teachers didn't know, or they didn't share, or it wasn't true. And, it, yeah. you know, and also, of course, it was in America. So like, there's that too. But curators seem to be, it, I feel like decades ago, so like when I was in school and you were the yeah. same time period, curators were who worked at museums the idea of an independent curator 20 25 years ago was not really a thing that didn't exist really okay yeah. good i'm just wondering if it was yeah. just me same no. over here okay. yeah it didn't exist okay so this idea of this independent curator who's out and on the ground going to studios connecting people doing all this kind of stuff this is relatively a new phenomenon i wonder 
You know the history of our country, right? Czech Republic used to be a communist country for a long time. I do know that much, the, yes. Yeah. So even during that time, if the curator wanted to see something else besides the communist-involved art, they had to visit private studios. They had to look at the work privately, non-officially, and they would get to see something completely different because everybody was kind of running two lines of work, right? What they really wanted to do and what was accepted and what they get paid for. And uh, I think we have a history of this. And now with the independent curators, it's even deeper and wider. Yeah, oh no, I've heard this from independent curators, other parts of the world even. I met one from Brazil and I've met some in Germany and, this, and, and they're very much all about going out, finding the, these people versus the um, sort of the stoic vision yeah, that yeah. I had 20 some years ago, 30 years ago of a curator, which was this person in the, the top tower of a museum that you know never spoke to artists kind of things. But that, that that's not true, that really they're becoming more and more important in right. the whole scheme yeah. of things that you really need yes. to find curators that will be on your side. How about, Absolutely. Even within that, actually, so I, this leads to another question, and this always happens. Have you ever had a curator write any statement or or grant or anything like this? Have, have you ever used curators to write anything for you? No, never. They would only write for a catalog. Okay. I've met some people who said, yes, absolutely. I'd love to have a curator come do it. I think it all depends on like how eloquent you are. You know, some people are more eloquent. To it I never yourself. thought of this, actually. It's it's an interesting idea. <laughs> I wouldn't mind. I would love it. Yeah, I, would I wouldn't mind. Love it. Because they are good writers. And they are. I'm not that good. And I don't, I don't like it that much. Well, yeah. but you're obviously pretty good at it. You're getting 90% of your grants, you said. So people like, say on. that. But when I, when I look at it, I, I always just see mistakes. So, yeah. But it's important that somebody else can see it and, and judge it and they like it. All right. Well, lovely. Thank you very much for your time. Thank you very much for inviting me. <laughs>